Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with Dwayne Purvis. Dwayne is a consulting petroleum engineer, a Fort Worth oil and gas celebrity, and always willing to have hard conversations and learn more. When the world started talking about the energy transition, Dwayne was the first petroleum engineer I saw willing to take a serious look at everyone, what everyone was talking about. And today I'm excited to have Dwayne on the show and just have a conversation. I, I'm excited to, to look, at, look at the energy transition through the eyes of a petroleum engineer. So Dwayne, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. And if you would, please share with me and the audience, who are you and what do you do? Hey, first, thanks so much for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I always enjoy talking with you. So I'm, I'm a consulting reservoir engineer. I've been in the business 20, 26 years now, mostly helping people to uh, solve hard problems, do field studies, reserves, reports, uh, litigation support, um, helping people figure things out. 26 years. That's, uh, <laughs> it's, a nice, it's, a, it's a nice long career. And, and I guess one of the things that I've always wondered, because I've been, I guess, doing geothermal, so similar subsurface kind of exploration ideas for 10 years. And I've yeah. seen a drastic change yeah. in over 10 years. Looking back on reservoir engineering yeah. from 26 years ago to now, what, what are some of the projects you've gotten to work on? Well, the projects certainly have changed. You know, when I started my career, there was no such thing as shale. And then the shale uh, revolution boomed underneath my feet. Literally, the Barnett is uh, 7,500 feet below me. <laughs> um, that's right. I had, to, I had to look up the contour map in my mind. Um, and then I ended up leasing my house, you know, for the Barnett shale. And Back in the day, they, things were so, so much different. Uh, been through a lot of change. I used to think that somebody was 30. Man, they were 30 years of experience. Man, that was really an old moss back. And uh, <laughs> I'm not really happy about approaching that milestone myself. So so in the past 30, well, 26 years, we won't, we won't jump the gun on the 30 years. <laughs> how, you. Have you, how have you seen going through... Um, going through exploration, what was it like 20 years ago versus what it's like today? Through, uh, from an exploration perspective? Yes. Uh, completely different. Um, so remember, we, we peaked oil production from the onshore uh, southern U.S., lower 48, in 1970. It was before I was born. And then there was an enormous enormous political will to develop production uh, after the two energy crises in the 70s. So up until about 86, just about, do I could tell you the month, um, there was another real boom. And production flattened out, maybe turned up a tiny bit, but that's all we could get out of it until price collapsed and nobody was going into the industry. So by the time that I started as a third-party reservoir engineer, uh, reserves guy in the mid nineties. Um, we were only 10 years past that activity peak and only, <laughs> only 25 years past the absolute production peak. Um, 
but the this game was already starting to change. The hottest thing then, when I came out, was to acquire and exploit the Hillcorp strategies of the world. Hmm. And you know, Hillcorp did that fabulously. My former employer Jetta did it very well. In fact, I uh, one of my former partners, um, Ed Colley Gillespie, started Hillcorp, invited me to join him in about ninety six, ninety seven. <laughs> Well, last time I talked to him, he was drinking a margarita on the back of his yacht in the Caribbean. Um, true story, Joe. Well, the everything started wind. A lot of exploration was winding down, and then early two thousands, the whole industry pivoted to gas. You know, it was, mm. it was nothing in the in the nineties. It was like a buck ninety in the nineties. But then all of a sudden, everybody started talking about. Uh, gas equivalent, BCFE for their reserves. Everything was all about gas until that popped in 2008. So we, the Barnett Shale really hit the public stage around 2005, the Fayetteville around 2006, and the Haynesville late 2007, 2008. And then it was off to the races. But we haven't discovered a new shale play since 2014. Hmm. We are now as many years past the start of the of the resolution uh, revolution as uh, since when it began, or almost. Wow! So there's there's no more shell, and the, the hottest play that my clients are doing right now is to buy unwanted participation interests on a wellbore basis. So Concho or somebody will say, "Hey, I'm, I'm going to non-consent this AFE for a single wellbore or a, a pad of three, but it's a wellbore only assignment. What do you give me for it?" Wow. And the hottest, the hottest ticket is to go buy these unwanted AFEs. Uh, and that's, that is a great measure of the status of the industry in the U.S. Where, uh, the, the limestones and sandstones we use to drill for are mostly fished out. But there's some plays, the ones that are misunderstood, uh, bypassed, really complex. I know a couple of them worked for with a client, one on the eastern shelf that's doing great, but there are not very many of them. And everybody went to shale because that's what that was available. That was a great opportunity, but that opportunity is is wrapped up now. I mean, if you don't if you don't have acreage, you're buying non consent AFEs that somebody else doesn't want. So, uh, yeah, very different world than when I started. Very different that, world. Yeah, and that is fascinating. That that is kind of the focus right now are those non consent AFEs. At least from from your perspective, which I would say is more of the kind of small operator and mm-hmm. and really the the family office kind of run oil and gas companies. But as I know you are aware, there are a lot of a lot of larger companies talking about this thing called the energy transition. How has the I guess how has the energy transition and the advent of that kind of changed what what you've been doing the past five years? Um, you know, it hasn't changed all that much that I'm doing yet. So there's a co- and there's this gap. I wouldn't suggest really that anybody go into petroleum engineering today, but I do see a future for subsurface engineering. Hmm. And I, I see the. Uh, the, the need for, for a reservoir engineer is preferentially on the front end. Now, the, the operations engineers, they're going to shut the doors. They're going to be the last people alive in the industry. But reservoir engineers mostly on the front end. So for the last five years, I've been watching the assets that I evaluate for people get worse and worse and worse, <laughs> which is just poop, just, just crap going through the market. Um, but at this and I, I've come to see the, the what we call the energy transition, although the name kind of annoys me, uh, as really a great opportunity. And at some point here, there's the the strategy is going to shift. You know, the international oil majors they shifted first, even um, six eight years ago they started to shift. Mm-hmm. The U.S. majors only got on board during COVID and then kind of reluctantly. But mm-hmm. it's continuing to snowball. And at some point, I think it's going to get down to every everybody. And there'll, there'll be an opportunity to do a whole lot more for the people who are entrepreneurial. But, of course, that's most of the industry. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that's it. It's interesting to me because one of the big things that that the company I work with, PetroLearn, we we are we kind of do the whole gambit on geothermal. Yeah. But one of the big 
things that that I've been pushing even before before joining PetroLearn was the idea of modular well conversion and focusing on one well or one well pad at a time. And I've always thought that that really fits better as a family office kind of investment because it's it's a smaller investment. It's a long-term return, but it's not it may not be getting the the required rates of return mm-hmm. that a hill corp or a a large super major would require so i don't it was probably 6 years ago i don't remember exactly when i first heard about bitcoin mining so you weren't flaring gas but it's only in the last 6 months that i've heard widespread discussion of it hmm. you know the uh i tell you what it really reminds me of I'm going to, I'm going to embarrass myself again. 1991. I'm sorry. Yeah. 1991. It's 30 years ago. I was going to lunch with a buddy of mine who was our IT professional, our IT head of IT. And he was so excited about this new thing that was called the world wide web. He was so (laughs) excited. And uh, at that point, the the only thing I knew about the internet was that um, there were a bunch of a sad souls who spent all night in the computer lab uh, on bulletin board services. Right. But he was so, he told me I could see what was on a computer in Australia. And I thought, why on earth <laughs> when will I ever care what's on a computer in Australia? Yeah. Yeah. Sunny. Hmm. Sunny low, smart guy. Still around, still, still around. Uh, you know, but here we are 30 years later. And we, we can't do this. I, we couldn't work. We've been through uh, multiple generations of development uh, through the internet, of uh, the, the kinds of things that the internet enables. And that's what the energy transition is. It's not really a transition. It's really a revolution. Hmm. And it's going to take at least 30 years. And by the end of the day, we won't recognize very much what we had before. Um. And it's, it's a really great opportunity. Um, so I heard Mark Zoback. Do you know Mark Zoback? I, I've heard the name, yeah. So he's, he's probably the world's foremost uh, geomechanics expert out of Stanford. Yep. So he did yep. a lot of work with all – yeah, a lot of work with the um, seismicity in Oklahoma, for example. He was talking. He said that the, uh, the EIA's forecast for net zero in 2030 says that we need to, 30 years from now – inject more CO2 per day than we currently produce in oil per day. Wow. I blew my mind. So I went and did the math. And on a mass basis or a pipeline volume basis, 30 years from now, we're, we are indeed going to have to inject more CO2 every day than we currently produce oil. There, there's motivation. For, there's money behind this. And who, who's better at at understanding where to put stuff underground than we are? Yeah, yeah, and I think that is going back to your your comment on the international super majors and then yeah. the and then the domestic majors making that transition. We see that today with with just a few weeks ago, all of the what some people call speculative bidding in the Gulf of Mexico for carbon sequestration leases Mm -hmm. and the, the large announcement several months, months ago by Talus energy saying that with their large CCS project. And that's, yeah, it's fabulous. Uh, They were, they were out in front, you know, there are only a handful, maybe a dozen uh, CCS projects anywhere um, in the world, but they're, but we're in such a great position here. And, and Talos was right out front. Yeah. I, I think it was a great move for them. Yeah. Yep. I would agree. So I guess it, when, when you hear the word energy transition, what do you think? Well, that, what I think is first, it's not really a transition. Yeah. It's really, uh, and, but also people don't understand. They don't understand that it's really an opportunity. Um, it gets poo-pooed a lot. In fact, I, I heard a guy speak uh, in October. He said he was going to – he's a lobbyist for the for small Texas producers. He said he was going to throw mm. up the next time he heard the phrase energy transition. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, man, it just sounds to me like internet. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is a, it's fascinating because the, the longer I do this podcast, the longer I really dig into all the different aspects of, of the energy transition or the revolution, as you call Mm -hmm. it, it, it really is, it's going to be a mix, Mm -hmm. but there are so many different aspects where, where the oil and gas industry and where subsurface engineering are mm-hmm. going to be key players. And yeah. in some really, we need CCS to make it possible. Yeah. We need yeah. geothermal to make it possible. With cool. those, we need engineers and geologists. Absolutely. Uh, I don't think these requires as many as before, but it does. That, that is the best opportunity in front of me and my clients, as far as I can tell. Um, it, natural gas has some legs. Uh, I'm, I'm bullish natural gas, particularly south side of the Eagleford um, and, and Midcon. But, uh, but other than that, I think the biggest growth area is, is CCS. Mm-hmm. You know, the, it's, uh, like I said before, with the Internet, the Internet's been through multiple stages. You know, there was a time when there was an AOL, <laughs> right? AOL didn't adapt, but they did huge. They did well for a while. Um, let's see, MySpace, mm-hmm. uh, then Facebook, then Snapchat. My kids think Facebook's for old people. <laughs> <laughs> then LinkedIn. Uh, we, we went through uh, Craigslist uh, and then the face, uh, Facebook marketplace, I guess, is, and, and offer up or some, we're going to, and Amazon started as this stupid pipe dream, losing a lot of money. Right. And of course, enormous market cap yeah. now. So there, there were some companies who, Oh, how about broadcast.com? Do you remember broadcast.com? No, no, you don't know broadcast.com. Okay. <laughs> do you know Mark Cuban? I do. Yeah. Okay. Mark, Mark Cuban, Mark Cuban, um, built a video streaming platform in the late nineties and he sold it to Yahoo for billions. And he explained when he sold it, that he had been through the PC boom in the eighties. And so he knew what a boom looked like and knew to sell it. And he made, he made enough money to buy the Mavericks and do a whole bunch of other stuff. And the site was closed within about two years because it was ahead of its time. It was YouTube. Wow. And huh. he, yeah, it, fabulous. Fabulous story. And there, we're going to see the same kind of stuff going on in the next 30 years. It'll be, it will be slow. It'll end up being totally different. But we're going to see the same kind of thing. And CCS is something that is going to have to have legs over 30 years. But, man, the opportunity is here right now. Hydrogen is going to be a lot slower. Hydrogen is going to be on the last third of that transition, maybe the last half. Because there's, there's still um, so much to build. But uh, geothermal is right up front. CCS is up front. Um, and we'll transition to electric cars, but that won't be the end of it. We'll, we'll probably end up with hydrogen cars. You know, it, it's going to be a multi-step process to, to get there. And we just because we can't see the whole way through doesn't mean we shouldn't start because um, there's, there's between the, – the estimates uh, from the NGOs are three to six trillion dollars a year has to be invested. Three point one to six point two wow. trillion dollars a year. That's pretty big. Yeah, yeah, those are big investments. I'm curious why. Why do you say hydrogen hydrogen is going to be on the back end? Because I've I've heard that multiple times. Yeah, but I also look at and wonder because transportation is such. It's one of our largest uses of fossil fuels. So yeah. if we want to decarbonize, don't we need to start replacing our current transportation system? Well, 100% we do. Uh, in a, the transportation is um, the largest portion of the emissions that we have globally. Uh, and hydrogen can create the power we need for any scale, airplanes, uh, dozers, no problem. Uh, but it's such a tiny industry right now. Um, electric vehicles have a big head start on them. Hmm. I saw last year an advertisement for a, a new electric car. They were taking pre-orders. Uh, it was a really basic subcompact, $10,000 for a brand new hmm. electric car. 
Uh, I, I have an electric car, a solar powered car actually on order and it starts at $26,000. It's just so much farther ahead in terms of, uh, infrastructure and technology. Than hydrogen that makes is. sense. Yep. Yeah, that makes sense. I just think about things like heavy industries and mining where, where the, the idea of doing that doing heavy mining using electric vehicles just doesn't doesn't seem to make sense and yeah no it, it probably won't but you can get all the power you need out of hydrogen uh their proof of concept and the i think it was one or both of the big plane manufacturers have said they're going to have prototypes they'll have planes by mid 2030s this is a tangential question yeah would you rather fly in a plane that is hydrogen powered or vegetable oil powered <laughs> you know I don't, I don't guess i have a preference joe um should i i i would just think you would you'd be more concerned about energy density and and stability of the fuel but no, I guess not. As long as they're proven and prototype well, yeah, then then you should you know, be okay. It's I have a brother-in-law who's a, a commercial airline pilot, and uh, not was he was telling me about the problems with the new Boeing jet. Was it, it was Boeing when they had a couple crashes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he kind of um, waved it off. That the biggest issue there was the pilots. There's so and that I understand that project didn't succeed like most do, but. For decades, the industry has done a great job of making sure airplanes are safe. You know, when they fail, you people die. And so they do, they do a really good job with it. Um, mm -hmm. I think by the time we have a, a plane, I'll, I'll be just fine to get in it. By <laughs> yep. the time the F FAA says it's good, I'm fine. Yeah. Yep. I agree. So I, I think I know the answer to this question. Okay. But I'm going to ask it anyway. As a petroleum engineer are you threatened by the energy transition? Well, yeah, but also no. I, I, I see the, the old work tapering down and the new work tapering up. Um, I'm already seeing other uh, reservoir engineering consulting firms consistently adver uh, advertise CCS services. Mm. I was at a conference two weeks ago. The platinum sponsor was um, Netherlands Sewell, and the headline of their ad was, we do CCS. Hmm. It's, it's, it can be both. You remember, I don't know if it's true or not. It's probably apocryphal, but the, the uh, Chinese word, the Chinese symbol character for crisis. Have you heard this? I have not. No. Oh, it's, okay. It's probably just a, apocryphal, but the story goes, there's a combination of the of the symbols for danger and opportunity. Ah, so the literal translation would be something like dangerous opportunity is a crisis. Okay. So, I like it. Yeah, and I I definitely see that because the my first thought when I was thinking about would is is something like the energy transition how do you actually navigate that as a petroleum engineer? And I think you just need to change your your uh, subtitle from petroleum to subsurface. Yeah. And it, it's that's a great point. I've, I've said, um, I, I, the class I teach at TCU, we've now renamed. It was Petroleum Engineering for Oil and Gas for Managers, and it is now Subsurface Engineering for Oil and Gas, or for Managers, rather. True story. Because the nobody really is interested in doing oil and gas, but uh, CCS and geothermal, and we can get hydrogen production out of fire mm -hmm. floods. There's a, a lot of energy in the earth besides um algae guts uh, yeah besides fossil fuels yep yeah yeah and i think that that's the one part that i that i always i i notice looking at enhanced geothermal systems and egs and the way that that the the growth of the geothermal industry is happening a lot of it is engineers coming out of mm -hmm. a super major yeah. oftentimes rare it is more rare for a geologist to to make that jump 
which is weird. I don't know why. It always seems to be the engineer who makes the jump and says, we know how to do this. We've been doing it in the oil and gas industry. Yeah. We think we can apply these skills and make this work. Mm -hmm. And it's everybody from a five-year veteran to a 35-year veteran who are starting these companies. Yeah, we know the physical chemistry. We know fluid flow and um, force media. Both We know how to create hydraulic fractures. We know how to simulate them. We know the, the heat transfer. We've got the rights of way. We, we know the maps of the, the subsurface. Uh, hell, I can go. I can go buy a map of uh, a dozen horizons in East Texas for a couple thousand dollars. You know, this is um, it's just a little different fluid. Carbon dioxide is is already something that we often study. We have all the correlations for it. It's just that we usually don't use it, or it's a small part of the thing. It just just put in a different fluid, and, and everything works. Yep. Yeah. So my guess, and tell me if I'm wrong, in the low carbon energy world, you see yourself pumping CO2 into the ground. Yes. I think there are other options too. You're talking about the geothermal systems and you know, I've had this conversation before. There are a surprising number of ways that you can, we can use uh, oil and gas technology to make geothermal energy because I, I was surprised how many op ways there are to make mm -hmm. geothermal energy. Right. Uh, and when we first started talking, I thought you had to drill into a, you know, a, a geyser kind of thing, you know, or uh, a, a, uh, drill down near a volcanic intrusion or something, but you don't, there's so no. many more options. There are more options than just that. And the, the thing that a lot of people don't realize and what, another one of those kind of evangelistic focuses or foci of of my work is talking about low temperature geothermal and direct use yeah. because that yeah. is everywhere well and that's the kind of thing that also fits really well for the small guys all right so yeah. you live in abilene you've made a living in abilene well first there's there's a power plant near abilene and there's going to be some gas plants near Abilene. They're going to somebody's going to pay you at least three bucks in MCF to put that that CO two away. Mm. Right now, you can get almost three bucks in MCF for it. And, but um, man, what if you what if you made a district heating for downtown Abilene? Mm. You got the tech for that. Yeah, and uh, it, it doesn't have to be a it doesn't have to be a giant scale. No, no, but and that I tell you. That would be a, a really good, solid project that, that could take people through an entire career. Just that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it could. It sure could. And I, I've got, I figure I want to have another 25 years. I mean, I get 25, but I'd love to work into my 70s. Um, but there, there is this kind of gap, though. Uh, you know, there have been a lot of people shutting down. And then there are other things that are still gearing up. Now, they're gearing up fast. Um, but one of the things I'm doing to, to try to bridge that gap and how to try to create the interest and the engagement of industry, uh, is I'm hosting a conference this spring. So the, I'm calling it the carbon expo. So it's meant to be a business exposition, like a consumer electronics show or the North American prospect expo. If this, this is the place to come to talk about how to do business and make money in the energy transition. Um, because I, I really think there's a great opportunity there. We, and we need that more than we need a, a prospect expo. Yep. Yep. I definitely hear you on that. And that's, it's really interesting to think about it in that, in that way, because really it is a, it is trying to make that, that industry gathering to, to figure out how to do this and how to do it in a profitable way. Yeah. When there are a ton of people starting stuff up and mostly they're, they're real small, now, we are seeing some um, larger players uh, get involved, cement companies and uh, uh, industrial chem gas companies and that kind of thing. Um, but we really need Kinder Morgan, uh, All Plans All-American. Um, uh, what's the enterprise? Now, these guys stand to make a lot of money moving all that, that hmm. CO2. And the hydrogen, too. We're going to have to move hydrogen at some point here. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, but right now it's mostly the smaller guys, but we need to get everybody together and say, Hey, look, 
if you want to do geothermal, this exhibit hall, and it'll be all virtual so people can come back for six months. Um, this exhibit hall, here are your vendors. Boom, boom, boom. You want to, you need to reduce your methane emissions. Good deal. Check out the exhibit hall. Boom, 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 boom. These are, these are your vendors. You know, when I'm talking, when I'm talking to operators, mostly they're trying to figure out from scratch from, from absolute zero, how to, hmm. what their emissions are and how to stop it. Right. And they'll, they'll take an ops engineer and they'll say, Hey, you're in charge of it now. What are we admitting? Wow. Right. And this, people are building it from scratch. Well, yeah. Let's, let's get together. Let's make this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's fascinating to think that people are, are trying to figure out these questions and figure out what, what their emissions are and figure out their own paths to a low carbon future when, I mean, that's, that is kind of the, the reason that, that I'm having this podcast yeah. is because there are people across the oil and gas industry, across the agriculture industry, across really in every sector, there is somebody working on decarbonizing that part of society and of life. Yeah. Yeah. And so there, there may be a solution for figuring out your emissions. And there are, there's a lot of different blockchain options for that. And and that's that's really why I have this podcast. And so that way we can share those stories and tell people. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So I you said Carbon Expo is completely virtual. Yeah. Yeah. So we um we're we are gonna do that. We've been planning it for a while, and partly the, the consideration was COVID. Uh, but it gives us several other opportunities. Uh, nobody has to drive to Houston. Houston's <laughs> not that bad. In what way, Joe? <laughs> no, listen, the, the first year, the first year I was in the industry, I was working um, for BP on Prudhoe Bay because they thought they were going to have a forced unitization. And I spent nine months living in a corporate apartment and commuting two exits on the Katy Freeway. The shortest I ever made the commute was about 25 or 30 minutes. For two anyway, exits? Two exits. I lived about a half a mile, quarter mile uh, north of the freeway, and I had to get to a building just immediately on the south side, two exits away. <laughs> I am not yeah. kidding. If I'd, I'd get on the freeway at 6.15 in the morning and be stop and go traffic. And I decided then it would take multiples of my salary to move me to Houston. <laughs> wow. Yeah, no, there's, there's, there are things to like about Houston. And, I, of course, a lot of our, our colleagues live there and have lives there. But, man, I really like Fort Worth. But yeah. the, the idea – we don't have to drive. Um, but it re- creates other opportunities as well. So we're, we have um, – 80 or 100 breakout rooms at this point. We, we'll get more if we need them. Um, every vendor, every exhibit booth has their own video chat room. We have a, a bunch of breakout video chat rooms in the lobby. Um, we'll have breakout rooms, small group video discussions, BYO lunch, and a happy hour from BYOB. <laughs> have you ever been to BYOB happy hour on Zoom? But the, the point is, we're um, the, and all the attendees are searchable. And the whole exhibit hall is searchable. All the content of the exhibit hall and the presentations can be online for six months. And online, I can offer this for $45 a person. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's a great, great concept. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of the, a lot of the points that you've made are, are really important. The fact that you're able to do it cheaper for everybody who doesn't know their place in a low carbon future Mm -hmm. so they can go and look at it at their leisure over the course of six months another another benefit and the just the ability to be hopping in and out that is that's one thing that i have definitely noticed the past two years doing some virtual conferences it is it's a lot easier to go in and just kind of go out like you show up yeah, to yeah, a room yeah. and you're like, uh, I don't actually want to talk to any of you people. And you just leave. <laughs> it's great. Well, most of the virtual conferences I've been to have been um, 
like watching uh, uh, community television. You know, low, <laughs> low production value is between two ferns without Zach Galifianakis. Um, but what we're going to do here is all the videos will be pre-recorded. We try a little higher quality video, but we've also um, chosen this platform that allows us to be interactive. We're going to have uh, uh, whiteboards where people can post messages and have ongoing discussions. Uh, we'll have um, the breakout rooms, uh, a, a social media wall with a, a running stream of commentary from anybody in the conference. So you can, you can, uh, and we'll have polls. So you'll be, you'll have access to know everyone who's there to find them and talk with them in ways that you can't do even live. Yep. One thing that that I've thought about associated with these virtual conferences and thinking about the future of a low-carbon world is the virtual conferences have to be a significantly smaller carbon footprint. They have to be, yeah. And as we think about decarbonizing our conferences, because everybody's talking about conferences going away anyway, they're just not really where people are doing business anymore. But is that going to be expedited because of the carbon aspect? You know, it may be, um, and it, it'll be more that way for some people than for others. But, you know, what, what we did when COVID started was to move everything online the same way we had been doing it before. And what we've been doing before was sort of an adjunct. You know, okay, yes, you can low, low production value, whatever, uh, kind of make it work, Jimmy rig it. And that was a fine. Uh, when I was looking at platforms for the conferences, some of the uh, more sophisticated platforms had made 3d, uh, virtual exhibit halls where the, they would take this 3d image, uh, 3d, um, render, and then put stuff on the, the backs of the platforms and then the, the visitors would walk around and kind of scroll through the map looking at the bit. Oh, that is just goofy. But as we've gotten farther into it, we've developed a new, um, a better way of doing that. We've got the tech is obviously there. Um, and we're going we're gonna to find ways that it's really good and productive to have a conference online. I, I think it'll be viable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I'm excited. I think it, it is one of those things that when we first started in the, the first conferences that I attended after, after COVID, yeah. or I guess when COVID became a thing, were, <laughs> they were, make it sound like fidget spinners. When yeah. everybody was really getting into COVID. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it just was it was one of those things that i'm like okay i'm ready to go back to real conferences i'll just wear triple mask or whatever i need to do but now it it's nice to be able to just sit at my desk and go and you know see things at my leisure i really really value the chance to, to see people in person i had lunch today with some friends um but i'm also getting really comfortable with watching videos on 1.75 speed. I really value that. Mm. Um, I, I like being able to search rather than randomly who I sit down at lunch with. Yeah. Um, I, I hope to keep having lunch with people for a long, long time. Um, but I, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be functional to do some of these things differently. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the one the, good. 1.75 speed. That's I listen to all my podcasts at two X. So yeah, depends on the is, speaker. Yeah, that's another one of those things though that you you obviously can't get live. No, so no, and, and it's a funny thing uh, how the communication works. So we we type like forty words a minute. We text a whole lot slower than that. <laughs> we can talk one hundred and twenty five to one hundred and seventy words a minute, depending on who you are. Uh, but we can listen mu- about twice that fast, one and a half to twice, and still we text. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't understand it. Um, just pick up the phone. Just pick up the especially the dialogue. Faster. If you want to say I'm on my way, text is fast. But man, my my family, my kids, and even my 
my uh, in-laws have, have adapted to the way the the world works, and they'll send um, an email link discussion on a text. Wow! Yeah, I I, I do it too. Fascinating. You know, my, yep. my kids, my kids think that email is also for old people, and they they tell me if you're going to send me an email, Dad, you have to send me a text to tell me to go look at my email. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. It's fascinating. Well, did you have something else to say? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Ah, okay. Well, I've, I've really enjoyed our conversation. I, I think we've, I think that you have done a very, a very productive and a very well-spoken push or, or, whatever you want to call it for how a petroleum engineer can navigate and, and see the energy transition for what it is, which is really just a, a shifting of, of your skill sets. And instead of producing all of that, all of that carbon energy, now you're just going to be putting a lot more of it into the ground than you would be producing out. Yeah. It's a carbon molecule with a couple of oxygens instead of a couple of hydrogens. It's yeah. but it's otherwise it's the same processes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get in. I've got a few final questions. I ask all of my all of my guests. Okay. The first one: What is the most important book you've ever read? Oh gosh. Uh, you know, one would be tough to say. Uh, for life lessons, I'd have to say the Bible. My dad's a pastor, and I, I probably know more Bible stories than most. Um, probably the most influential work, book on my work life is still Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Is that is that uh, old school now? No, that is a very common answer. Is it really? Beautiful yeah. piece of work. I was reading back through it last year, a part of it. It's just brilliant. Uh, I, I wish he'd gotten the eighth habit into the book instead of a whole book for itself, but because it does, the eighth habit does not deserve its whole book, but it is legit. What's the uh, eighth habit? Mentoring, giving it away. Mm-hmm. And I will say you do a great job of, of that sharing knowledge aspect. That is, that's how I first found you on LinkedIn because you are so pervasive at, at, sharing pretty much all of your research and all of yeah. all of the all of the knowledge that you are discovering you do a yeah. great job of sharing it I, and that's I appreciate that another reason why i think carbon expo is going to be so great because you are the one who's who's spearheading it and you're such a great mentor and really teacher and promoter in that way well, i appreciate you saying so i i really value uh, equipping other people. I, um, I decided a long time ago that if, that if I were going to have an oil company and I have tried, I needed a CEO cause I'm much better with ideas. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I had a, well, I was partnered with an HBS hard, hard business school guy. Um, but I just love, I just love giving away ideas. Well, good. So the next question, when will we be net zero? <laughs> uh, I don't know. And by, by we, you mean the world? The world, you and me, society, Fort Worth. Man, I don't know. It, you know, the um, on a global sense, uh, a global scale, the U.S. is way behind. Uh, we, we buy a fraction of the number of electric vehicles. We have a fraction of the policies. Um, the, most of the world is, is far ahead of us. And we, I'm not sure I understand why, uh, I wish I did. Um, but I'm afraid that we lack the political, uh, infrastructure that the, the, this, the political infrastructure doesn't work anymore for us to make hard decisions and compromises to get stuff done. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's actually a really good point that you make because a lot of there, there is that, that 
governmental or, or federal mandate that kind of pushes things forward. Whereas our focus has always been, I guess, from the, from my view, the commercial side of, mm-hmm. of any yeah. aspect of industry has always been the focus. And, and because there is no carbon market yet, there is no incentive to well, see, go that way. And it would be fabulous if there were. Right now, there are 64 policies in 61 jurisdictions around the world for carbon taxes. Uh, most of Europe, China, started their carbon trading system. It's live now in 2021. China's ahead of us on environmental regulations. Um, but the, the voluntary carbon market is happening whether the government does something or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, the, the best carbon uh, offset credits you can buy are forests. And, you know, that's okay. But it's not nearly as good as geologic sequestration. Yep. Um, and so I, I really think that uh, companies and countries and people who want to be carbon neutral will buy their own, will buy offsets. Like mm-hmm. The carbon market's coming. I just don't know when it'll, the voluntary market will, is coming. And that, yep. But I, if the government doesn't do anything, we'll be behind, but we'll still, we'll still move that direction. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I think I, I'm hopeful that once, once we do get on board, it'll just kind of be like a, a snowball going downhill and it'll just gain so much momentum and speed that, yeah. that will, will start becoming, we will be the leader that, that we know we can be. And I think that that's, I think that's the case for a couple of reasons. One, I think we have a much better system to adapt quickly to put mm. geothermal or um, CCS in place, right? We have, uh, lots of infrastructure, lots of money can go to work. But we also have um, uh, people, people sometimes forget about, excuse me, often forget that the shale revolution came on the back of massive government subsidies and tax incentives for oil and gas in the late seventies and early eighties. Hmm. It was a response to the energy crisis, the massive policy push, all kinds of incentives that made the technology that snowballed, as you said, into the shale revolution. Well, the same thing's happening now in everything else. We don't, you don't necessarily can't necessarily see it. That it's going to happen yet, but at, um, solar, uh, electric or wind generation is uh, 20 or 25 times less expensive now than it was uh, in the early 1980s. Right? Mm-hmm. It's going to snowball. Yep. Yeah. And I think that's a, another good point that the, the shale revolution ultimately was, was facilitated and was nucleated by government subsidies. And yeah. Yeah. we have, we do have significant government subsidies right now going into into renewables. There could be more, but I think that, that that's the phase we're in, and hopefully that phase is expedited. And we well, get it, it has been working, right? Uh, both wind and solar have been on exponential declines in cost. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget if it's what the numbers are, but they're like 8 and 15% decline every year in cost per power all right this it's working um just like it worked for us when at the mm-hmm. point you know when the when the oil embargo hit the two oil crises we were burning oil for electricity <laughs> hmm. um saudi arabia still does but one of the things that we did was to switch from that to coal on national security issues and then there was a there was an enormous i think it was like a dollar in mcf federal tax credit for tight gas, unconventional, unconventional gas, tight gas. And that, that caused Steve Holditch and his generation to develop hydraulic fracturing, massive hydraulic fracturing. Hmm. And then George Mitchell put it to work. Wow. It's, it's a short line. Yeah. Yep. There are, there are other issues with, wind and solar, the intermittent nature, but we can save that for our next conversation. I look forward to it. Yeah. The last question that I've got for you is, do you have any questions for me? (laughs) When we talk again, I enjoyed that. Um, I, no, I, 
it is a topic that I'm, I'm spending a lot of time and energy on. Um, actually, one of the things I'm doing for myself uh, in this transition is I've undertaken a graduate degree program. Hmm. I'm studying sustainable energy at Johns Hopkins. Ah. Um, so it's, it is really something I'm committed to. Yeah. Uh, and, and have a lot of interest in. In fact, uh, just today, I was looking at the duck diagram about uh, the intermittency of renewable power. You're nodding your head because most of your listeners probably don't know what this is, but it's a thing. It's a thing about intermittency. Yeah. Um, and it's, they're fascinating problems. It's, it's actually a lot like what I've appreciated about reservoir engineering. It's a really difficult problem. You can't really get your, it's really hard to get your hands around. You can't really see it. Right. But it's, a, yeah. but it's an important problem. Yeah. Yep. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Well, Dwayne, thank you for joining me on the show. Before we sign off, is there anything else you would like to say? Uh, if if you next time you come over, we'll go to Heim. Heim go barbecue. Heim? Heim barbecue. Do you not know Heim barbecue? No, I do not know Heim barbecue. Is this a new place? No, it's not a new place. They they went from a food truck to three locations, and they are fabulous. I keep saying fabulous. I love the word. Oh. But really, really good barbecue. We need to do it. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Thank you, you so much it? for having me. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. Anybody who is in Fort Worth or visits Fort Worth, go to Heim Barbecue. <laughs> thank you, Dwayne. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please do me a favor. Give me a five-star rating and leave a review. Doing these two simple things will help these stories reach a wider audience. If you want to hear more great stories from the energy industry and keep up to date with all of us, connect with OGGN on LinkedIn or visit OGGN.com. And do you ever get bored working in the same place? If you're in the Houston area, you can go try out the Canon co-working space. If you mention OGGN, they'll give you a free day pass. When I'm in Houston, that's my office. And it's also where we host our monthly OGGN industry mixers. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story you want to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.